Let's get started uh, with a word of prayer first. Father, we thank you for your word, for your sovereignty over all that you've created, and we thank you for the opportunity to uh, look at your word and to consider the ramifications of uh, what you've told us about how you started everything, and we pray that you might open our minds and uh, consider these different points of view and that we might be instructed to worship you uh, in even a greater capacity. And we just thank you, Lord, and pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we're looking at creation this morning, but I want to do a little uh, review so that you understand the context in which we're doing this. We're talking primarily, if you remember, when we opened this series about Weltanschauung. Okay, that's the German term that's used a lot still in uh, academic circles anyway uh, for worldview. And uh, really, you know, we, 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 when we opened this up, we considered, um, you know, that everyone has one, it's communicable, uh, and some different aspects of, about that. Philosophy, science, culture, and religion generally make uh, dominant contributions to it. And so what is it? It's the personal worldview each individual has. What, and what is a worldview? A worldview compromises one's collections of presuppositions, convictions, and value from which a person tries to understand and make sense out of the world and out of our own lives. So a worldview is a conceptual scheme by which we consciously or unconsciously place or fit everything we believe and everything that we see and everything that we interpret and judge reality by. In another way to frame that, uh, Francis Schaeffer in his book, How Shall We Then Live?, says that people's presuppositions rest upon that which they consider to be truth, the truth of what exists. Schaefer maintains presuppositions form the basis of a worldview, and people will live more consistently on the basis of those presuppositions than even they themselves may realize. That worldview lays a grid for the way they see the external world, and their presuppositions and worldview form the basis for their values and the basis then for all of the decisions that they make. And we explored that a little bit in further depth. But we want to talk about what a Christian worldview is also. And MacArthur, John MacArthur in his book, uh, Think Biblically, um, developed the following uh, definition as kind of a working model. He said, let's take a look at that. Well, wrong way. He said, The Christian worldview sees and understands God the Creator and His creation, that is, man and the world, primarily through the lens of God's special revelation, the Holy Scriptures, and secondarily through God's natural revelation in creation as interpreted by human reason and reconciled by and with Scripture for the purpose of believing and behaving in accord with God's will and thereby glorifying God with one's mind and life, both now and in eternity. So that's 
a, a good definition for what a Christian worldview is. Arthur Holmes, professor at Wheaton College for more than 40 years and author of All Truth is God's Truth, summarizes the unique implications of a Christian worldview when relating absolute truth back to God. He says, number one, to say that truth is absolute rather than relative means that it is unchanging and universally the same. Secondly, he says that truth is absolute, not in and of itself. In other words, truth doesn't just stand by itself out there because it derives ultimately from the one eternal God. It is grounded in his metaphysical objectivity, as he says, and that of his creation. So it's grounded in him outside of his creation, and it's grounded in what he has created. And then thirdly, he says, absolute propositional truth, therefore, depends on the absolute personal truth or fidelity of God himself, who can be trusted in all that he says and does. So ultimately, that's the source of all of our uh, truth. So this is the framework which we're working in to look at the different topics like creation or science or economics or uh, a lot of other things. So that's the, what we want to put this in, and that's why we're looking at this, because this is a topic that, as you probably know, is discussed a lot uh, in certain circles. And we're confronted with really two radically different worldviews that interpret or postulate on the creation narrative, as we'll see. We're going to look at several works this morning that are both overlapping in what they're saying. So a lot of what I'm saying up here today is it's going to sound like I'm repeating myself, but I want you to keep in mind that I'm coming at it from three different angles, three different points of view. And so there's a lot of overlap, but um, their approach to it is is very difficult or is very different, and it was difficult for me to figure out how to put this together. So I'm just going to present each view, let them overlap, and I think you will see at the end, at least I hope you see, um, how these things are really uh, rich in their explanation and how rich this topic is, and I hope it whets your um, appetite for exploring this some more. We're using three, uh, three main sources here this morning, Francis Schaeffer's book, a new book uh, just published back in April, by Abner Chow, and then, of course, uh, Think Biblically uh, by MacArthur. There are some other sources uh, out there that I just don't have time to get into this morning. Um, Henry Morris wrote the Genesis record back in 1972. Excellent work. Uh, He and uh, the uh, thing that he founded there, the Institute of Creation Research, Uh, explore kind of the apologetic, the scientific apologetic approach to um, creation. We don't have time to get into any of that this morning. We're just going to talk about some areas or viewpoints of it and not look at the the, uh, scientific or apologetic side of it. And then there's another site, site Answers in Genesis, that you might want to take a look at. So the three areas that we are going to take a look at this morning are uh, from Schaefer, kind of the philosophy and the space-time factor or the space-time continuum. It sounds like Star Trek here a little bit, but it's a fun uh, way to explore this topic. 
then we're going to look at the hermeneutical issue of history and theology uh, that Abner Chow puts through uh, forth in his book. And then finally, MacArthur's uh, view on this uh, and how uh, evolution speaks to, speaks to this and also kind of the religious substitution that goes on within that thought process. So Schaefer, in his book, Genesis and Space of Time, talks about in the beginning. and the opening verse of Genesis, in the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. And the remainder of chapter 1 of Genesis brings us immediately into the world of space and time. These are key um, terms that he uses. Space and time are linked together. They're interwoven in a relationship in what we call history. Thus, the opening sentence of Genesis and the structure of what follows in the first number of chapters there uh, emphasize that we are dealing here with history just as much as if we were talking about ourselves in this place and particular point in time. So many of the Greek philosophers saw truth as the ex, uh, expression of a nicely balanced metaphysical system, rather like a mobile, uh, mobile, uh, so that if everything's balanced, uh, it could be left alone and considered true. Well, the biblical concept is the opposite of this. First, it is completely opposite from the modern concept of truth because it is concerned with that which is open to discussion, open to rationality, and is not just an existential leap without foundation. Here, uh, it is like the Greek notion, and yet it differs from and is deeper than the Greek concept because it is rooted in that which is historical, where the Greek system may not be. For example, we find Moses in Deuteronomy 4 and 5, he says, you saw, you heard just before he died, and he was reminding the Jews who stood before him that when they were young, they themselves had seen and heard what had occurred in Sinai, that is, in space-time history. Their parents had died in the wilderness, but they, the children, had seen and heard in history. Joshua spoke the same way a little bit later in Joshua. So as a matter of fact, we have an exact parallel uh, in these and other Old Testament passages to John's explanation, Apostle John's explanation, of why he wrote the Gospel of John. He said, now Jesus did many other signs. In Schaeffer's language, language, you want to put that as uh, space-time proofs. So he did many signs, space-time proofs, in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So as we deal with the book of Genesis in particular, we must not understand it solely in Greek terms of truth. That is, that it's relative, that truth is relative, nor certainly in terms of an existential leap without a truth, without a foundation. Instead, we have an insistence upon history, truth that is rooted in space and time. Schaefer also writes about what happened or what was going on before the beginning. And Genesis begins 
in the beginning, but that doesn't mean that there wasn't uh, something out there before that. In John 17, 24, Jesus prays to God the Father, saying, You love me before the foundation of the world. Jesus says that the God that God the Father loved him prior to the creation of all else. And in John 17, he says, with, he says uh, to the Father to glorify him uh, with the glory which I had with you before the uh, world existed. There is, therefore, something that reaches back into eternity uh, before the phrase in the beginning. And we find the same thing in 1 Peter chapter 1, where Jesus' death is said to have been foreordained before the foundation of the world. And in Titus, uh, God promised eternal life before the ages began. So how can a promise be made before the world began? To whom could it be made? Well, Scripture speaks of a promise made by the Father to the Son or to the Holy Spirit because, after all, at this particular point of sequence, or you want to say movement in time, but that's not exactly correct. So Schaefer talks about a sequence, uh, and he says that in that sequence that that uh, promise was made uh, uh, among the Trinity. First uh, Timothy chapter 1, verse 9, we read uh, about God where it says, "...who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began." So there's a real reference to what uh, preexisted creation. So we are faced, therefore, with a very interesting question. How did history begin? If one is thinking with the modern concept of the space-time continuum, then it is quite obvious that time and history did not exist before um, in the beginning. But if we are thinking of history in contrast to an eternal, philosophic, or uh, other, uh, in contrast to a static, eternal, then history began before Genesis 1.1. The worldview of an impersonal beginning, as opposed to what is recounted in Genesis, um, the notion that everything began with an impersonal something is the consensus of the modern world uh, in, the, in our 21st century here. It is also the consensus of most of the Eastern thinking about eternity and uh, creation. Eventually, though, if we go back in, their think- in that line of thinking far enough, we come to an impersonal source. It is the view of the scientific community of, the, of modern science for the most part uh, and is embodied in the notion of the uniformity of natural causes in a closed system. And it's the concept of much of modern theology also, if one presses back in most modern theology far enough. An impersonal beginning, however, raises two overwhelming problems which neither the Eastern thinking nor our modern science has come anywhere near solving. First, 
There is no real explanation for the fact that the external world not only exists, but has a specific form. Despite frequent attempts to reduce the concept of the personal to an area of chemical or psychological conditioning, scientific study demonstrates that the universe has an express form, and as we look at the being um, that we exist in, the external universe, it is obviously not just a handful of pebbles thrown out into space. Uh, What is there has form. And if we assert that the existence of the impersonal as the beginning of all of that, what we see, we simply have no explanation for, for what it is we see. And secondly, and more important, if we begin with an impersonal universe, there's no explanation of personality. In a very real sense, the question of questions for all generations but overwhelming for modern man is, who am I? For uh, when I look at the I that is me and when I look around to those who face me who are also men and humanity, one thing is immediately obvious. Man, as Schaefer says, man has a mannishness. He's referring to our personality and, and even more than that. We've got a mannishness that we find in every civilization. And even when you go into archaeology and look back at past civilization, that is very, very apparent in every uh, finding that people or that archaeologists would find. In short, the impersonal beginning explains neither the form of the universe nor the personality of man. Hence, it gives no basis for understanding human relationships. Building just societies or engaging in any kind of a cultural effort. And it is all men who need to understand these questions. We all ask those types of questions of ourselves and of what we see. And there's a few implications to the worldview that everything's impersonal. It is neither either knowing or denying the createdness of things that is the root, Schaefer maintains, of the blackness of modern man's difficulties, the hopelessness, in other words. Give up creation as a space-time historic reality, and all that is left is what one philosopher calls uncreatedness. And, And he's not saying that something does not exist, but that it just stands there autonomous to itself without solutions and without answers. Once removes... When one removes the createdness of all things, meaning and categories uh, can only be some sort of leap um, into an irrational world. Modern man's blackness, his, his hopelessness, uh, therefore rests primarily on his losing the reality of the createdness of all things. At least the createdness except for God who has always been there. But because, as true Christians, we can truly know truth, even though not exhaustively, why why is something uh, that is there and why the world has form and men have uh, managedness, 
we can sit down with somebody that's going through some difficulty and we can talk and have a discussable answer about why things are the way they are. So we are the ones as believers in Christ that have some answer to what we see and observe. And this is the framework for our thinking. This is our worldview, as it should be for every Christian. And without this framework and the truth that exists in this pace-time continuum, even thankfulness for salvation really becomes meaningless because without it, it's just out there suspended in a vacuum. There's nothing, there's no foundation to it. So both uh, are rooted in the fact uh, that God has existed, he is different, um, he pre-existed all things, and he's the former, the creator of all things. So that's a little bit from Francis Schaeffer. So Abner Chow, in his book, deals with some hermeneutical issues of history and theology, and Abner Chow is a professor of biblical studies at the Master's University now, along with some other contributors in his book um, uh, from that faculty. So the book is What Happened in the Garden. And he writes about the importance of the hermeneutical approach and the indivisibility of theology and history. And he says, traditional hermeneutics gives equal weight to two things. It cares about the history that a text supposedly described and the theology it communicates. But there are some theological scholars and schools today uh, that would say such an interpretive uh, methodology is flawed based upon how God wrote the Bible. They assert that God accommodated his message to the ancient readers so that they would understand his truth. Thus, God, he uh, communicated his ideas in the stories, cultural practices, and language, and even the flawed worldview of the writer and his audience. So based upon that, they would argue that Genesis chapters 1 through 3 are merely an accommodation to the audience. They would say that it's a vehicle that communicated truth, but were never meant to be taken as the truth. Thus, their hermeneutical practice separates the incident, the historical aspect of the story, as they call it, from the external message. But Chow maintains that the interpretive methodology, that interpretive methodology itself is an error because it doesn't address the issue of how the biblical writers themselves consider the relationship between history and theology. He says that the first step is to gain a working definition of how history and theology interact. To do this, we have to look at several examples where the authors, the human authors, present the rationale of how history and theology operate. From there, we can see how this plays out through the rest of Scripture. In 1 Corinthians 15, uh, verses 14 through 19, Paul lays out the clearest example of this. His view of the resurrection um, argues that if the resurrection never occurred then our faith is in vain, our preaching is false, and we have no hope, and thus are to be the most pitied. Notice that the apostles' logic in that 
uh, is not that the theology of the the resurrection can be true even if the historicity of the resurrection is false. Rather, in Paul's mind, in his description, if the history fails, so does our faith. This concept is at the core of how the Bible relates history and theology. Although Paul's discussion of the resurrection may be the clearest, it's not the only in which the uh, text in which the Bible demonstrates such logic. Peter's view of the flood follows the same as Paul's um, uh, discussion of the resurrection. In his second epistle, uh, Peter's confronting the false teachers who are indifferent to uh, God's uh, eschatological judgment. They base their indifference on the fact that the earth has continued on as, uh, as it was uh, since the beginning. And Peter argues that the precedent for judgment actually exists, the global judgment of the flood. In context, Peter's point of view cannot be that the flood is merely a metaphor for how God hates sin. That wouldn't disprove the false teacher's supposition. Rather, He contends that the world has not continued as it was since the beginning. God actually judged the world, and that historical reality supports that he can do it again. In sum, he reasons that the historicity of God's past acts is the grounds for his promises about the future, a logic exactly parallel to what Paul had put forth. The apostles uh, continue uh, in various places to intertwine history and theology, just to name a few. Christ's life and death provide an example of godly suffering and humility for us to follow uh, in uh, Philippians, uh, Philippians chapter 2. Um, God demonstrated his love in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us in Romans. Christ died on behalf of the ungodly so that we would become the, un, uh, become the righteousness of God. His death demonstrates that God is both just and justifier. His resurrection conquers death and gives us hope for a new creation. So these passages, the historicity of Christ and his work, is essential. So we can ask uh, questions like the following here, about these texts that we just uh, cited. If Christ never came, did God actually love us in the way Paul describes? If Christ never died, then did God forgive sin? If Christ never atoned, is God just and justifier? If Christ never rose and conquered death, why would we rise from the dead? These passages argue that when we take away the history of an event... We also take away the reality of the theology. Paul's presentation of the gospel is the case in point. He does not claim that we're saved because God is kind and gracious. He says that we are saved because of what Christ did on the cross and and his resurrection. Um, So they see the history as grounds for theology in reality. Peter's point is that God's judgment is not some theoretical idea, but rather it's real. Not only did the flood demonstrate that he can act in wrath, but that he has, in fact, done that. 
And there's other examples throughout uh, the New Testament of that. So these correlations allow us to define the relationship between history and theology one step further. The biblical writers don't see history as merely a means of communicating theology. Listen to what I'm saying there. They're not saying that history is not merely a means of communicating theology. Rather, they see history as the means of actualizing theology. History is the vehicle by which theological truth comes into the world and impacts our lives. So far from separating history from theology, the Bible ties them uh, together. You see that? Then in a later chapter in that same book, Grant Horner, uh, who is the professor, uh, a professor of English at uh, the Master's University, explains that in regard to chapter 3, uh, the following, uh, chapter 3 of Genesis. And he's talking about the fall here, but the application is very apropos back to even the beginning, and I think you'll see that context. He says that the real problem that we have is our curvedness and the fact that we read things, um, we have a curved reading to things or interpretation of things. So he asked, why are there so many varying interpretations and therefore misinterpretations of Genesis 3 or all the way through uh, from chapter 1 through Genesis 3? He maintains that the text is not the problem, it's actually the explanation and so what does he mean that misinterpreting Genesis 3 is explained by uh, Genesis 3? Well, the answer, he says, is simple. The fall so deeply affected Adam and Eve and all their descendants that we have not only lost our ability to know God, but we have lost our ability to know that we have lost our ability. You see that? Our spiritual blindness for which we traded away the perfect uh, vision of Eden, leaves us so blind that we think we see. We are blind in a labyrinth that has no end. And he refers back to John Calvin, who made extensive use of this same metaphor. He uh, used a Latin phrase in, I'm going to attempt this, in se descendere, uh, which uh, he point. Uh, apparently appoints to a view that the self, our view of self, in perfectly encapsulates our miserable, sinful position. We descend into ourselves. Doesn't this sound new age here from John Calvin? We descend into ourselves in order to find ourselves or find God or find meaning, uh, meaning peace or satisfaction. But our utter depravity entraps us in our own minds and we become the labyrinth of ourselves, unable to escape, unable to get outside of that. So the position we adopt when, Horner says, that we have to adopt when we approach Scripture, and this certainly includes chapter 1, verse 1, we don't instruct the text. It instructs us. We don't critique the text. It critiques us. And in a certain sense, we don't even interpret the text. It interprets us. It tells the truth about ourselves without which we will remain in the state of the fall and blindness in the labyrinth that he describes. 
So his thesis, Horner's thesis, is really simple. He says, our tendency to explain away, dehistoricize, and misread Genesis 3 is a direct result of the very thing the narrative describes in such absolutely clear terms, a literal historical account of creation and fall into spiritual blindness. We suffer from an inability to read our own story of how we fell into the habit of misreading, misinterpreting um, what God says so clearly. Our history of these many misreadings shows that the text is exactly what it appears to be to any simple-minded reader of the text, a history, a sort of genealogy of how we came how we became misreaders of our very origins. The irony, he says, is very palpable if you're willing to step back and really look at it. And Martin Luther often used a a Latin phrase uh, about the depth of of our fallenness, which is uh, particularly um, instructive in this argument also. He said that man is incurvatus in se. And, And what that meant was that uh, man is curved inward into himself. We are unable to look accurately beyond ourselves to really see either God or his world. All we see is ourselves. Our view is selfish in every sense. Uh, furthermore, that inward view of ourselves is distorted uh, in our perverse fallen minds create a self-image that is irreducibly inaccurate. So multiple misreadings or misinterpretations of Genesis will be the most natural thing to happen in this world. If that story, Genesis, is true, especially if it tells us exactly who and what we are now, we don't like that story. The details aren't very flattering to us. Willingness to accept that story on its own terms, which is really the first step in developing a Christian worldview in a correct reading is agreeing that it says what it says and that what it says is absolutely true, to deny our own condition as good, right, and unbroken. So, that's a little bit from Chow. So now in the book, Think Biblically, MacArthur begins the the chapter on creation by explaining about naturalism. And that's the view that every law and every force operating in the universe is natural rather than moral, spiritual, or supernatural. Naturalism is inherently anti-theistic, rejecting the very concept of a personal God. Many assume naturalism, therefore, has nothing to do with religion. In fact... It is a common misconception that naturalism embodies the very essence of scientific objectivity. I think everybody's taught that in school. Naturalists themselves like to portray their system as a philosophy that stands in opposition to all faith-based worldviews, pretending, even to themselves, that it is scientifically and intellectually superior precisely because of its supposed non-religious character character. And that's not true, because religion is exactly the right word to describe naturalism. The entire philosophy is built on a faith-based premise. Its basic presupposition and a priori 
rejection of everything supernatural requires a giant leap of faith. And let me, we'll explain what that looks like. Nearly all of its supporting theories must be taken by faith as well. One famous naturalist was Carl Sagan. He said, The cosmos is all that is, or ever was, or ever will be. And that was his trademark aphorism. Uh, aphorism. Uh, repeated, uh, and it, that was repeated on every episode of his television series called Cosmos. The statement itself is clearly a tenet of faith, not a scientific conclusion. Conclusion, because neither Sagan himself nor any other scientist has ever been able to examine uh, all of the world and everything that ever was or ever will be by any kind of a scientific methods. Sagan's slogan is perfectly illustrative of how man's, of how uh, modern naturalism mistakes religious dogma, dogma for true science. Sagan's religion was actually a kind of naturalistic pantheism, and his motto sums it up perfectly. He deified the universe and everything in it, insisting that the cosmos itself is that which was and is and is to come. Sound familiar? Having examined enough of the cosmos to see evidence of the Creator's infinite power and majesty, he imputed that omnipotence and glory to creation itself, precisely the error that the Apostle Paul describes in Romans chapter 1, where he says, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived, and ever since the ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse, for though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Exactly like the idolaters that Paul was describing Sagan put creation in the Creator's rightful place. Carl Sagan looked at the universe and saw its greatness and concluded nothing could possibly be greater. His religious presuppositions forced him to deny that the universe was the result of intelligent design. In fact, as a devoted naturalist, he had to deny that it was created at all. Therefore, he saw it as an eternal and infinite He saw it as eternal and infinite, so it naturally took the place of God in his thinking. MacArthur goes on to make a number of other points regarding creation and evolution and the inadequacy of scientific thought today. He um, had one section here that, uh, let's go the right direction. He talks about creation, believe it or not, but as you look at that, you can really think about it as the absurdity of, of um, naturalism. He says that it's hard to imagine anything more absurd than the naturalist formula for the origin of the universe. This is it. Nobody times nothing equals everything. There is no creator. There was no designer purpose. Everything we see emerged or evolved by pure chance 
from a total void. Ask the typical naturalist what he believes about the beginning of things, and you will hear about the Big Bang Theory, the notion that the universe is the product of an immense explosion, as if an utterly violent and chaotic beginning could result in all the synergy and order that we observe in the cosmos around us. But what was the catalyst that touched off that Big Bang in the first place? And what, in turn, was the catalyst for that? Something incredibly large had to fuel the original explosion. Where did that something originate? A Big Bang out of nowhere quite simply could not have been the beginning of all things. It is the material universe itself eternal, as some claim. And if it is, why hasn't it wound down? For that matter, what sets it in mo- what set it in motion in the first place? What is the source of energy that keeps it going? Why has an entropy uh, charged caused it to uh, devolve into chaos rather than um, what we see? Develop uh, apparently developing uh, into a more orderly and increasingly sophisticated system as they uh, purport. Secondly. Uh, evolution is degrading to humanity. If evolution is true, humans are just one more uh, of many species that evolved from common ancestors. We're no better than animals, and we ought not to think that we are. If we evolve from sheer matter, why should we esteem what is uh, spiritual at all? In fact, if everything evolved from matter, nothing spiritual is real. We ourselves are ultimately no better or different than any other living species. We are nothing more than a bunch of protoplasm waiting to become, as MacArthur says, manure. It is only a matter of time before a society uh, that believes that embraces such thinking and casts off any moral and spiritual restraint. And I think we're seeing that even in our culture today, aren't we? So... He also says that evolution is hostile to reason. Um, it's just as irrational as it is amoral. In place of God as creator, the evolutionist has, has substituted chance. Uh, sheer fortune, accidents, serendipity, coincidence, random events, blind luck, whatever you want to call it. Chance is the engine most evolutionists believe drives the evolutionary process. Chance is therefore the ultimate creator. Naturalism essentially teaches that over time and out of sheer chaos, matter evolved into everything we see today by pure chance. And this all happened without any particular design. Given enough time and enough random events, the evolutionist says anything is possible. And the evolution of our world and all of its intricate ecosystems even our own body, uh, is therefore simply the inadvertent result of a very large number of indiscriminate but extremely fortuitous accidents of nature. Everything is the way it is simply by the luck of the draw, and chance itself has been elevated to the role of creator. John Ankerberg and John Weldon point out that matter, time, and chance constitute the evolutionist holy trinity. And these three things um, are all that is eternal and omnipotent in the evolutionary scheme. Matter, time, and chance. Together they have formed the cosmos as we know it, 
and they've usurped God and his evolutionist uh, in their mind. Um, so either God, there is a God who created the universe and sovereignly rules his creation, or everything was caused by blind chance. These two ideas are mutually exclusive. If chance rules, God cannot. If God rules, there's no room for chance. Make chance the cause of the universe, and you've effectively done away with God. As a matter of fact, if chance is a determinative uh, force or causes, uh, cause exists, even in the frailest of forms, God has been dethroned. The sovereignty of God and chance are inherently uh, incompatible. If chance causes or determines anything, God is not truly God. But actually, chance isn't even a force. Chance can't make anything happen. If you take a coin and flip it into the air, it's not chance that determines its heads or tails. It's how much force. You may not have been able to control that precisely, but it's how much force you put to it. It's gravity. It's a whole lot of other factors that determine that. It wasn't chance. Chance doesn't do anything. It simply does not exist. And therefore, it has no power to do anything. It, it cannot be the cause of any effect. It is just an imaginary hocus-pocus. It's contrary to every law of science, every principle of logic, and every intuition of sheer common sense. Even the most basic principle of thermodynamics, physics, and biology suggests that chance simply cannot be the determinative force that has brought about order and interdependence that we see every day in our universe much less the diversity of life that we see on our own planet. Ultimately, chance simply can't account for the origin of life and intelligence. In other words, nihilism is the only philosophy that works with naturalism. Nihilism is a philosophy that says everything is entirely without meaning, without logic, without reason. The universe itself is incoherent and irrational. Reason has been deposed by pure chance. He goes on and explains that evolution is antithetical to the truth that God has revealed. He says, um, the actual record of creation found in Genesis 1-1, where it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and uh, the earth, would be uh, probably the simplest statement you could ever make. It's hard to state an answer to the great cosmic question that we see, that we deal with, any more simply or directly than that. The words of Genesis 1-1 are precise and concise beyond mere human composition. They account for everything evolution cannot explain. And about the uniqueness of the Bible's approach to creation, Dr. Henry Morris, in the book that we put up on the board a few minutes ago, uh, the Genesis record wrote this. He said, uh, Genesis 1-1 is unique in all literature, science, and philosophy. Every other system of cosmogony, whether ancient religious myths or scientific models, starts with the eternal matter or energy in some form from which other entities were supposedly gradually derived by some process. Only the book of Genesis even attempts to account for the, ma- the origin of matter, space, and time. And it does so uniquely in terms of special creation. S- and so in that very first verse of Scripture, 
each reader is faced with a simple choice. Either you believe God did create the heavens and earth, or you believe he did not. If he did not, he does not exist at all. Nothing has purpose. Nothing makes any sense. If, on the other hand, there is a creative intelligence, there is a God, then creation is understandable. It is possible. It is plausible. It is rational. So whether we believe the Genesis record or not makes all the difference in the world and makes all the difference in our worldview. Douglas Kelly, the professor of, a professor of systematic theology at Reformed Theological Seminary, has written on this subject with great um, insight. He says, essentially, mankind has only two choices. Either we have evolved out of the slime and can be explained only in a materialistic sense, meaning that we are made of nothing but the material... Um, but the material, or we have been made of a, in a heavenly pattern. And he's right. There are ultimately the only two, those are the only two options. We can either believe what Genesis says or not. If Genesis 1-1 is true, then the universe and everything in it was created by a loving and personal God, and his purposes are clearly revealed to us in Scripture. Furthermore, if the Genesis account is true, then we bear the stamp of God and are loved by him, and because we are made in his image, human beings have a dignity, value, and obligation that transcends that of all other creatures. And if Genesis is true, then we not only have God's own answers to the questions of what we are here for and how we got here, but we also have the promise of salvation from our sin. If Genesis is not true, however, we have no reliable answer to anything. Throw out Genesis and the authority of Scripture is fatally compromised. That would ultimately mean that God of the Bible simply doesn't exist. And if some other kind of creator God does exist, he evidently doesn't care enough about his creation to provide any revelation about himself his plan for creation or his will for his creatures. If Genesis, so if Genesis is false, nihilism is the next best option. Utter irrationality becomes the only rational choice. So obviously the ramifications of our views on these things are immense. Our worldview on creation is extremely important um, for establishing the correct worldview. It is so vital to the issue that Francis Schaeffer once remarked that if he had only an hour to spend with an unbeliever, he would spend the first 55 minutes talking about creation and what it means for humanity to bear the image of God, and then he would use the last five minutes to explain the way of salvation. The, so the starting for, point for Christianity isn't in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, but in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. So you fool around, you tamper with the book of Genesis, and you undermine the very foundation of Christianity. You can't treat Genesis 1 as a fable or a poetic saga without implications, profound implications to the rest of Scripture. The creation account is where God starts this account of history. It's impossible to alter the beginning without impacting the rest of the story, not to mention the ending. If Genesis 1 is not accurate, then there's no way to be certain that the rest of Scripture tells the truth. If the starting point's wrong, the Bible itself is built on a foundation of falsehood.
So in conclusion this morning, we've looked at what a Christian worldview is, just reviewed that. We've also examined reasons for a belief in an actual six-day creation from the apologist and philosopher Francis Schaeffer. We've examined how our hermeneutic method is important in consideration of our view of creation uh, and implications if we don't hold to a historical, theological uh, narrative view of creation. And we've considered MacArthur's points about the inadequacy of evolution and the absurdity of chance. So to wrap it all up, if you reject the creation account in Genesis, you have no basis for believing the Bible at all. None. If you doubt or explain away the Bible's account of the six-day creation, where do you put the reins of your where do you put the reins of your skepticism? Where does the Bible become true? Do you start in Genesis 3, which explains the origin of sin, and believe everything from chapter 3 on? Or do you begin sometime after in chapter 6 because the flood is questioned also by scientists? Or perhaps you found the Tower of Babel too hard to reconcile with the linguist theories about how languages originated and evolved. So maybe you start talking, taking the Bible as literal history beginning with the life of Abraham. But when you get to Moses' plagues against Egypt, will you deny those too? How about the miracles of the New Testament? Is there any reason to regard any of the supernatural events of biblical history as anything other than poetic symbolism if you did that in chapter 1? After all, the notion that the universe is billions of years old is based on some naturalistic presuppositions, if held consistently, that would rule out all miracles. If we're worried about uh, appearing unscientific in the eyes of the scientific community, we're going to have to reject a lot more than Genesis chapter 1. Once rationalism sets in and you start adapting the Word of God to fit scientific theories based on naturalistic beliefs, there's no end to the process. If you have qualms about the historicity of the creation account, you're on the road to complete skepticism about uh, and outright unbelief about all the supernatural elements of Scripture. Why would you doubt the literal sense of Genesis 1 unless we are prepared to deny that Elisha made an axe head float or that Peter walked in water or that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead? And what about the greatest miracle of all, the resurrection of Christ? If we're going to shape Scripture to fit our beliefs, the, the beliefs of naturalistic scientists, why stop at all? Why is any one more difficult, uh, what, any one uh, miracle, any more difficult to accept than another? And what are we going to believe about the end of history as foretold in Scripture? All of the redemptive history ends, according to Second Peter chapter three, when the Lord recreates the universe. The old world, the first creation, passes away, and according to Revelation, God will immediately reshape that or reform or recreate a new heaven and new earth. Do we really believe he can do that? Or do we think it will take another 50 billion years of evolutionary process to bring that about? Do we really believe he can remake the universe and create a whole new one? What's the pro- And if we believe that, what's the problem with believing the Genesis account of a six-day creation in the first place? If he can do something at the end of the age, why is it so hard to believe that he did what he did at the beginning? So the question of whether we interpret the creation account as fact or fish, fiction has huge implications on every aspect of our faith. Believing in a supernatural, creative God who made everything is the only possible rational explanation for the universe. 
and for life itself. And to the questions, who am I? What am I here for? So it's the only basis for believing we have any purpose or destiny. It's the only proper start to a Christian Feltenschang or worldview. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for these very unique uh, views of your creation and what it means to us. We just thank you, Lord, that you uh, chose to create all that you have uh, in all that we see. We just uh, are amazed at your magnificence, and we just thank you that you have included you have included us in that that you've saved us out of that and that you have an eternal destiny and we thank you that we can have confidence in um, every uh, aspect of your uh, revealed uh, word to us from Genesis 1 to the very end of Revelation and we pray that we might um, consider the seriousness of that of our being consistent and believing all of what you have communicated to us and that we might uh, thereby uh, worship you even more. And we thank you and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.